Good evening. Well, it's great to see you here. And uh, I know pastors already said this, but thank you for your desire to hear from God and from His Word tonight. And may He take His Word and uh, specifically direct it to your heart and your mind, no matter where you find yourself in your journey with Jesus, no matter your age, uh, no matter what's been going on in your life of recent days or of even this day, may He speak specifically to you. Uh, I, uh, I love the Word of God, and I have a shelf and a half full of Bibles back in my home. Maybe that's kind of like you as well. It was about a year and a half, two years ago, I was going to preach in a church, and um, before I left, the pastor said, oh, I want you to know, Andy, we, we preach out of the uh, New King James, and uh, so if you, could, if you could do that, that'd be great. And I said, hey, no problem. And I realized of all the Bibles I had, I did not have a New King James. And I thought, oh, no big deal. I'm, I, it's like flying out the next day. I'll just stop by the store and I'll find one. And I did. And um, maybe you've already noticed this, but the only one that they had was a student edition, um, one that's very, uh, very colorful and very um, uh, bordering, bordering on the teenage girl look. But uh, uh, anyway, so that, that was that. And uh, so I, I added it to my collection of Bibles. And then when I was going to be coming out to Beaverton, by the way, anyway, use New King James. I've got one. I'm ready to, ready to go uh, for this. I think my, my, my teenage daughter has been eyeing it. So uh, she'll, she'll, she'll probably give it to her. But uh, anyway, I do love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? I trust that, uh, trust that you do. Uh, very good. Well, as you see, we are in 1 John. I'd invite you to take your Bible and let's go back to 1 John chapter 2. We ended yesterday afternoon, if you were able to be with us, uh, with verse 2 of chapter 2. So tonight we pick up where we left off. I know your church believes in the exposition of the Word. And that's what we do. What's the next verse say? So that's what we're going to look at. Let me read the passage for us here this evening. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. In Indiana for 13 years, one Wednesday night after our Kids for Truth program was done, my wife and I, which had a part in that particular ministry, were, we were approached by a college-age young lady, a young adult, a young lady who had grown up in, that, in our church, a young lady who had been in my youth group when she was in teenage, a teenager. She was currently studying in a Christian college, and she said 
to us, can I talk with you too? Oh, by all means. So we stood in the youth room uh, in that church right next to the piano. I'll, I'll never forget. Stood next to the piano and she just poured out her heart to us with the tears in her eyes, a conversation that we had had with her more times than I can count. This was just the latest edition. As she poured out her heart to us again about her fear that she was not saved. I can tell you of many other other conversations that I have had, and maybe you have had as well, with people who have been so inwardly in turmoil and havoc wreaked on their heart and mind that though they have been around Christianity and church and Christian environments and have prayed before for salvation, there is something within them that causes them to doubt with great fear whether or not they are even saved. Maybe I speak to someone here tonight. The truth be told, you find yourself there. You've been there for years. You've been there for decades. Every so often that doubt begins to creep up and questions such as this come to your mind when you think about your salvation. Did I mean it? (laughs) Did I repent enough? What if I didn't do it right? What if I don't remember what I prayed? What if I've been fooled all this time? What if I have fooled myself? And these questions that swirl always have a common denominator in it. Have have you noticed this? That the common denominator is always I. What if I didn't? What if I have been? What if you are starting with the wrong person? When it comes to your salvation, can you do anything to save yourself? And yet when we doubt where our questions go, us. But what you long for more than anything is just to know. Or maybe you know someone who has been struggling with this, someone you love, maybe someone in your family, maybe someone in your church family, or someone from a former church or or, or, a relationship you've had for many, many years, and you just wish you could help her or him. Well, I've got good news. The Apostle John wrote an entire letter to help Christians know that they have eternal life. Do you remember what the, the key verse of 1 John is? We talked about this yesterday, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. I am writing to believers. Why? So that you may know, that you may be certain that you have eternal life. And so what the Apostle John does is throughout this letter, he uses certain tests as evidence or proof to show to Christians that they truly have been saved. He presents several tests, and and these tests are not how you get saved, but they are proof that something has happened to you. Because if these tests are true in your life, if these evidences are true in your life, it is proof that something supernatural happened to you. 
Because the natural man, those, those without Christ, would never be this way. But because you are this way, don't you see? God has done something to you. God has made you alive. So this book is, this letter is one of great encouragement. Now here in chapter 2 of 1 John, he introduces three big tests of assurance of salvation. And then he will elaborate them. If you're familiar with the writing style of John, he says something and then he like circles around and says it again. And then he circles around and says it again. That's what this letter is all about. It'll make you dizzy. He just goes over and over it again. But we need that reinforcement. So in, it's introduced largely here in chapter 2. One of the tests is the test of obedience. In other words, this is what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who wants to obey God. A Christian is someone who willingly obeys God. May I tell you this? Those without Christ, they're not concerned about obeying God. If you are, hello, Do you not see that as an evidence, a test of obedience? There's another test that John talks about in chapter 2 and throughout this letter. That's the test of love. A Christian loves other Christians. A Christian desires to love others as God loves them. Here is another evidence. May I tell you this, non-believers, they don't concern themselves with loving other Christians. But... Those who have been made alive by Christ do. Then there's a third test that's mentioned in chapter 2, or in discussed in chapter 2, and that is the test of perseverance. In other words, those, uh, Christians are those who never stop believing the truth about Jesus, His deity primarily, the truth about Jesus, who He is and what He has done. And He will say, those who have made a profession, they have professed that they are followers of Jesus, they are believers in Jesus, but later on they say, no, I don't believe that anymore. They prove they never believed because a Christian is someone who clings to the truth about Jesus by God's grace. Here in our text tonight that I just read, verses 3 through 6, he introduces and elaborates upon one of these three big tests. I'm going to read one verse again, and I want you to determine which test is it. The test of obedience, the test of love, or the test of perseverance. Let me read verse 3. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. Which test do you think it is? Obedience, love, or perseverance? Obedience. Well done, class. Obedience. A Christian is someone who willingly obeys God. A Christian wants to obey Christ. A Christian desires to please the Heavenly Father. A Christian values God's commands. A Christian willingly obeys Christ. That's what this text is going to say. So let's pick it apart. Let's unpack it here. And what I'm going to do in these four verses is I want to give you two statements. The first about Christ and about salvation. And they are super simple. Let me tell you what they are here at the very beginning. Here it is, okay? Christians know Christ. And secondly, Christians obey Christ. I like John 
because you don't have to scratch your head and go, I, I don't understand what he's saying. He is like right there. He could not be more simple. He could not be more clear. Christians know Christ. Christians obey Christ. Let's look at these two. The first one, Christians know Christ. This one is going to be a little bit more evangelistic in its statement. In other words, this is how you define a Christian. A Christian is someone who knows Christ. But then when we get to the second statement, Christians obey Christ, here is where the assurance comes out. This understanding of, oh, I don't just know him, I know that I know him. But let's look at this first one here. Christians know Christ. John could not be more clear. A Christian is somebody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can be a Christian and not be sure that you know Christ. But you cannot be a Christian if you don't know Christ. This is speaking about the relationship that you have with God. So let me define what knowing Christ is all about. When I say knowing Christ, I mean, and the New Testament means, the same thing as possessing eternal life. Do you remember yesterday, if in the, the, the uh, Sunday morning service, we talked about what makes up a Christian? What is a Christian? Is a Christian is someone who has eternal life. And then we learned who is eternal life? It is Jesus himself. Well, I quoted a verse yesterday, and I know you remember it, so let me quote it again here tonight, and that is Jesus' prayer to his Father, John 17 and verse 3, where Jesus defines eternal life. He says this to his Father, This is life eternal, that they, his followers, might know you, and that they might know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So do you understand that when I ask you tonight, my friend, do you have eternal life? I'm asking, do you know Christ? Is he in your life? When I ask, have you been saved from your sin? I'm asking, do you know Christ? When I'm asking, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? I am asking, are you knowing Christ? Do you know Him? When I ask, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I am asking, do you know Him? Because knowing Christ is the same thing as possessing eternal life. It is what salvation is all about. So, as we think about this whole idea of salvation and eventually to the point of, do I know that I know Him? The question you begin with and must begin with tonight is this, do you know Him? You are not to ask yourself, do I know things about Christ? As though mere facts about Jesus could save you. Now, I want to be clear There are certain facts about Jesus that are necessary to know that leads to salvation. But just knowing facts does not save you. There is an element of faith. 
You could sit here this evening and say, well, I know Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the Lord, the Redeemer, the Creator. I know He is good and righteous and holy and merciful and loving. I know that He died for sinners. He was buried and He rose again and He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm glad you know that. But you know who else knows that? (laughs) Right. James says the demons know this. And I can guarantee you they're not on their way to heaven. Knowing about Jesus does not save sinners. Knowing Jesus saves sinners. This is what salvation is. Christians know Him. This knowledge is personal. It is vital. It is living. You need to ask yourself this question. Do I know Him? Am I in relationship with Him? I'm in relate. Let me give an analogy. I am in a relationship with my wife, Bryn. (laughs) If you were to come after the service to me tonight and say, Andy, tell me about Bryn, I'm not going to say, okay, uh, let me tell you about February 26, 1979, her birth. I'm not going to tell you her birth date. I'm not going to tell you her favorite color or her favorite hairstyle. I'm not going to just spout off facts about, you know, all of her characteristics. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the person I know the person I love. I'm going to tell you what makes her laugh, what makes her cry. (laughs) I'm going to uh, tell you what she likes and what she dislikes. I'm going to tell you about her smile. I'm going to tell you about the experiences we have had together. At the end of the conversation, you're going to walk out of here and say, Andy knows Bryn. And I know that Bryn knows him as well. If I can take that and multiply that in a much more in a much greater way, Christians are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And may I say this also, it's obvious when two people are in a relationship with one another. May I take it a step further? It's obvious to the people in the relationship that they have a relationship with one another. On Thursday, I'm going to fly back to Reno and Bryn is going to pick me up. When she gets out of the car, I'm not going to be like, oh, who are you and why are you talking to me? No, because there is a relationship. We've entered into something. There's something going on between Bryn and me. So it is with the Christian in Christ. There's something going on. I know it. He knows it. We are both in this covenant relationship together. So I ask you, do you and Jesus Christ have a personal shared relationship? Is something going on between you two? Do you know Christ? Take it another step. Does Christ know you? Not know about you. Of course, he knows about you. But is he in relationship with you? I think about what Jesus himself said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many, speaking about the final judgment day, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have we not cast out demons? And in your name have we not done many wonderful works? I mean, here are people who did all the religious expectations. They performed religious services for God. Wonderful. But then Jesus says, but then I will profess to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now hold it. Why aren't they allowed into heaven? Because there was never an entering of this salvation relationship. There was nothing going on. They performed, but there was not the vital relationship. Do you want to get into heaven? It is not what you do. It's who you know that gets you into heaven. Do you know Jesus? Jesus said this in John 10 and verse 14. He said of himself, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And am known of mine. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. John 10, 27, he elaborates, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know the voice of God? Have you, have you heard Him? Do you recognize His speaking in your life? Christians are in relationship with Christ, and they know it. Do you? By the way, this uh, salvation is so wonderful that all throughout the New Testament, there are all these different metaphors and different ways of it. So we've talked about possessing eternal life. We've talked about knowing Christ. Yet here in this very passage, I don't know if you caught it, John uses another terminology for the very same thing. He's talking about knowing Christ. He also says it's being in Christ. That's a, that, that, that's a well-known uh, New Testament terminology. Let me show it to you in verse number five. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. It is the picture of being placed in Jesus, Jesus being placed in us. We are drawing life, eternal life from Him. As a teenager, I'm mowing my lawn in the backyard and I inadvertently knocked a branch, broke a branch off a little tree in our backyard. Well, to hide it from my parents... What I did is I grabbed the broken off branch and masking tape and I went back to the tree and I tried to reattach it as best I could, the the broken off branch, and then I taped it. My hope was that since it was done so quickly that as the weeks and months would go that somehow miraculously the, uh, the branch would get reconnected and there would would grow and then I could eventually take the tape off and everything would be good. Well, the rest of that season, the tree flowered and bloomed and leafed and all of that except that one branch. You know why? Because even though it was closely attached, it was no longer connected to the life-giving tree. Does that not remind you of the teaching of Jesus in John 15? Where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Draw your life from me. So, let me put it, let's try to apply this here. A person can hang out with Christians, can speak Christian words, can attend Christian events and join Christian churches, 
can pass confirmation, hold to family values, can be a decent, moral, religious person, can be baptized, can even be for Christianity, but unless they are in Christ, unless they are connected to the vine, unless they are drawing life from Him, unless they know Him and our relationship with Him, they will not have eternal life. They are dead in their sins. Christians are connected in Christ. They are drawing life from Christ. They are in relationship with Christ. They know Christ. Do you? So I, I, I love how clear John is. Christians know Christ. You can't be a Christian if you don't know Him. If not, tonight's the night. Return away from your sin and believe Him as your Lord and Savior. Receive Him. But is it not true that those who know Christ at times struggle with knowing that they know Christ? The certainty has been stripped away. And that leads us to this second statement, Christians obey Christ. Look at verse 3 again. We're going to really dive more into the text now. Now, by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. Christians have a knowledge of salvation, have the knowledge of Christ, and they should have this knowledge that never leaves them. This certainty should never leave them. Now, sometimes it does. But how can you reassure your hearts before God? How can you help your loved one who is struggling with doubts of salvation? Take him here to 1 John 2. And we see, if the Christian keeps the commands of Jesus, obeying God and submitting to Christ, this will bring reassurance to the heart. Now, this word keep, keeping his commandments, the word keep is the idea of guarding a treasure. Have you ever been to a bank? A lot of banks have safety deposit boxes. What do you put in those safety deposit boxes? You put your priceless heirlooms or jewelry. You put your your important papers. You put your passports, whatever it may be. Something you so value, you don't want them stolen. You don't want it damaged. So you put it in a secure location to keep it, to guard it. This is my treasured item. So it is with the Christian. Christians keep and guard God's commands. They look at the commands of Scripture and they value them. What God desires for our life is treasured to us. We we think obedience to God is precious, not grievous. We want to live rightly. We want to submit to God. We do surrender to God. We are glad to obey. We want to obey. And oh, we hate it when we don't obey. Because we value it. In fact, Peter, the apostle in 1 Peter 1.14, you know what Peter calls Christians? Peter gives Christians another name, and I love this. 1 Peter 1.14, he calls Christians children of obedience. What a name. Ah, but the apostle Paul, he's got a nickname for non-Christians. 
And this is in Ephesians 2 and verse 2. You know what he calls non-Christians? Children of disobedience. Do you see the contrast? Those who are spiritually dead, those who are lost, those who are not saved, those who do not know Christ, those who do not have eternal life, they don't obey God. They don't have a desire to obey God. They are unconcerned with what God has to say. Now, they have learned in this life because of the common grace that if I do certain things, certain good things happen to me. And so they may do that. But there's no concern about, I need to obey God. But for those of us who are saved, we want to obey God. We don't always But it's our desire to follow after Him. We willingly obey God. We are concerned about pleasing God. You chose to come out on a Monday night to hear from God. Do you not see the supernatural work of the Spirit in your life? Again, this is not how you are saved. It is evidence that God has done a work of salvation. Christians willingly obey God. I go back to what Jesus said back in Matthew 7, in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So those who know Christ obey Christ, and they are the ones who are going to heaven. So, that's what verse 3 gets at. Look at verse 4. He who says, I know him. He who says, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I know him. And does not keep his commandments. Wow. Is a liar. And not only is he a liar, there's no truth in him. (laughs) There are people who say that they're saved, they know Christ, they might even they're saved. Again, they go to a Christian church, they say Christian words, they hang out with Christian people, like that branch that I broke, they're attached, but not connected, but they persistently disobey God. They have a habit of disobedience to God. They are unconcerned with obeying God. He claims to be converted to Christ, but there is no concern to obey Christ. Her walk contradicts her words. Their behavior is different from their belief. Their lips say, we are children of obedience, but their lives consistently show they are children of disobedience. The Apostle John straight up says, they're lying. There is no life there. There is no salvation because a Christian is someone who values God's commands. A Christian is someone who keeps God's commands. Okay. I think it's highly important for us to take a step back and ask a couple of very important questions. And this question I'm going to ask you, I want you to know up front, it is not a trick question. I don't have time for trick questions. I despise them anyway. I want to be as helpful as I possibly can. So it's not a trick question. Face value. Here it is. Do Christians disobey God? Yes. 
Do Christians disobey God as badly or as worse at times than many non-Christians? Yes. To not believe that is to fail to understand the depth of your depravity. So the temptation for us as Christians, tender-hearted Christians, would say, well, if a Christian is someone that proves their salvation because they obey God and I disobey God, I disobey God a lot. How could I be saved? I must not be saved. To that I would say, and I'm going to borrow this from another pastor, and I liked how he put it, the issue John's talking about here, the issue is not perfection of life but direction of life. Is the direction of your life towards obedience to God? Is that where your desire is? Is the direction of your life towards obedience to God? Or is the direction of your life towards disobedience to God? You see, when a Christian sins against God, she hates it. She confesses it. She longs to obey. Oh, Lord, remember the advocate of yesterday afternoon? Oh, Lord, I have done wrong. Oh, God, cleanse me again. I'm so sorry. I hate. I am grieved in my heart that I have sinned against you. This is the heart of a Christian. When a non-Christian sins, he doesn't realize he sinned against God, nor does he care about that. When a non-Christian sins against God, he doesn't hate that he sinned against God. He's not interested in confessing it to God, nor is he longing to obey God. Now, to be sure, a non-Christian probably doesn't enjoy the consequences and the fallout of the sin and the crime and the evil that he or she has perpetrated. But there's nothing in them that says, oh, I have sinned against God, I need to get right with God. It doesn't even come in the idea of a non-Christian. They are dead in their sins. But a Christian, their heart is grieved that they have grieved the heart of God. Let me give an example from the Old Testament and then bring it into the New Testament. There was an infamous city that doesn't exist anymore, an ancient city called Sodom. Have you heard of this city before? It was a city, a city populous, renowned in the ancient world for wickedness, immorality, and injustice. It was a bad town. There happened to be someone who took his family to live in Sodom. You know who that was back in the Old Testament? A guy by the name of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. You're here in 1 John maybe one or two pages back into 2 Peter. Would you, I want you to look at this because I think it's vital for us to understand what John's getting at. You're in 1 John. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Again, just a page or two back in your Bible. Here, Peter, the apostle, is talking about God's judgment on false teaching and how God will not spare false teachers from His judgment but how He preserves in the midst of evil those who are His own. He uses several examples, and then He uses a 
surprising example in verse 7 and 8. And God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Do you see the example here of Lot? Three separate times the apostle, under the inspiration of God, says Lot was righteous. In the eyes of God, he was a follower of God. He was righteous. And twice, in these two verses, this righteous man, his righteous soul was grieved, vexed, troubled over the sin around him and in his family. If all we knew about Lot was from the Old Testament, Genesis 13 to 19, we would come away with this idea. Lot is under God's condemnation in hell today. But there's this little thing called the New Testament. And we are told Lot was actually righteous. He made horrific decisions. And may I remind you, He lost everything that was held dear to him. Sin bites, sin destroys, sin takes, sin ruins. He lost his wife, he lost his family, he lost everything. But he did not lose his soul. So don't miss the point here. Christians have a history of wanting to obey God. Their lives are in the direction of righteousness. They fail and they hate it. But they are striving by God's grace to obey Him. Look at verse 5. We're back in 1 John 2 now. Would you look at verse 5? We have just been told those who say they know Christ but they don't obey Christ, they are lying, they are not saved. Verse 5, but here's the contrast, whoever keeps his word, whoever treasures his word, obeys his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Let me rephrase verse 5 here. Christians... God's Word because they love God. Christians obey God because they love God. And as they obey God more, their love for God grows. And as their love for God grows, so their obedience to Him will grow. And as their obedience grows, their love for Him will grow. And as their love for Him will grow, the more they will obey Him. It is a cycle. It feeds off one another. The love of God is being matured and perfected in that individual. You are getting better at loving God the more you obey Him. You are getting better at obeying Him the more you love Him. What did Jesus say, John 14, 15? If you love me, keep my commands. Obey me. Do you love me? Obey me. 
those who love God, Christians, they want to please God. So they obey God. You know who these people are called? They're called Christians. So is it your ambition in life to please God? I am not asking, is it your perfection in life? God has begun a good work in you, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, and He will complete it at the return of Christ. But until that day, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. But is it your ambition to love Him and obey Him? Is it your desire to submit to the teaching of Scripture? Are you obeying God? Those who are saved, this obedience, their salvation will show up in their willingness and desire and actions of obeying God. Those who have Jesus in their lives will be imitating Jesus. That's what verse 6 talks about. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. I like that word ought. Christians should be obeying God. Sometimes they don't, but they ought to be. And they know they ought to be. And they are. But those who say, I abide in Christ, I know Christ, I have salvation, well then they should be looking more and more like Jesus. I heard a preacher one time say this, God is so big and you are so small, if you have God in you, He'll be sticking out somewhere. (laughs) This is how you show others and show yourself that you do have Christ in you because you are living like Christ. Did Jesus obey His Father? Did Jesus uh, obey the commands of His Father? I have come to do your will, Father. And so, as Jesus behaved, walk meant, as He behaved a certain way, so Christians say, I'm going to be like my Lord. Jesus served others. Jesus mourned over other sin. Jesus loved people. Jesus obeyed the Father. And a Christian is someone who longs to do the same. And will be. Christians obey Christ. This is an evidence. This is not how a person is saved. It is proof that a person is saved. I mentioned the young lady in our at the very beginning, who talked to my wife and I about her fears of her own walk with God, her own salvation. And my heart resonated with her because when I was a youngster, I struggled with knowing, am I a believer? Am I not a believer? I remember many nights in grade school, third grade, fourth grade, I would lie in bed at night and I would plead with God to save me. If, you, if I didn't mean it last night, I really mean it tonight. What I never considered as a youngster was that nearly every Sunday when I went to church, my Sunday school teacher, at some point along the lines, class, let's sing a song. 
Anyone have a favorite? Someone raises their hand. They want to sing obedience. Have you ever heard that song before? Have you ever listened to the words of that song before? It's ripped right out of 1 John. Let me read the words to you. I sang this all the time as a kid. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. I want to do this. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. 1 John 1.4 4. <laughs> Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. We want to live pure. We want to live clean. We want to do our best, sweetly submitting to authority, leaving to God the rest. Walking in the light, 1 John 1, 5. Keeping our attitude right on the narrow way. For if you believe the word you, will, you receive... You will always obey. This is the pattern of your life. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. I never thought that hating sin, confessing it, and committing to obey God again was an evidence that something different had happened to me. It was there the whole time. Oh, do you know that you know Him? Christian, you will know that you know Him when you keep His commands. Father, in Jesus' name, thank You for the Scripture. Encourage our hearts for Your glory. Speak grace to troubled hearts. Speak peace to doubting hearts. Speak salvation to unbelieving hearts. Amen.